2: Lee, hi, and hello from the Midlands.
1: Hello, Adrian, it's great to be with you.
2: One of the world's best-selling authors says his talent for writing was made in the Midlands. How come?
1: Without those two libraries as a little kid, I would have been a completely different person.
2: Would it be true to say, then, that the library saved you?
1: Every word you can think of, saved, created, rescued... All of those words are true.
2: This is Lee Child, the author of the Jack Reacher detective novels, worldwide sales of which exceed 100 million. So when you ask what did the Midlands mean to me, I mean everything.
1: It was, it, that's who I am.
0: This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg.
2: Welcome to the first ever edition of this podcast designed to celebrate and to excavate the cultural identity of a region which is actually home to 10 million people. I often think the Midlands can be a part of the world that's all too easily forgotten, ignored even. For instance, Northerners seem to assume Midlanders are Southerners. Southerners think we're Northerners. So I've been asking some famous people from our bit in the middle of England about their connection to their home place.
0: Episode 1 Lee Child was born in Coventry in 1954 and raised in Birmingham until he went to university. He then worked in TV, before quitting that to write books. He now sells a book every 13 seconds. Don't ask us how they work that one out.
2: Coming in, three, two, one. We ought to tell people that you are talking to us from Colorado. Obviously, a long time since you've lived here. What does the Midlands mean to you?
1: Actually, I was conceived in Leicester, born in Coventry. (laughs) 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 And then grew up in in Birmingham till I was uh, 18, and so... my my dad was a civil servant um and in in the old system your promotion meant that you were moved around a lot you know the leicester coventry birmingham thing then he went on to work in walsall and wolverhampton and so on so yeah for the first 18 years of my life the midlands was it for me and of course it was a very very parochial world and so the midlands was all i had for the first 18 years which are obviously the formative years of anybody's life um, so when you ask what did the Midlands mean to me I mean everything it, it was it, that's who I am that's where I grew up so, you know your first couple of decades that's who you are
2: and you grew up in a suburb of Coventry called Steichel I think can you remember anything of Stychell? I know you left at the age of four so pretty young have you got any <laughs> yeah. memories of Coventry
1: oh yeah I do I remember the house I remember uh, my dad going to work on his bicycle. Uh, Coventry was a tremendous bike town. At the end of a shift in the factories, you would have thousands, literally thousands of men coming out on bicycles. It was like a tsunami of bicycles. Uh, 10 abreast down the street, off they would go back home. I remember the, uh, the bombed out cathedral. Um, And I was born nine years after the war, and so my memories are probably, you know, at the earliest 12 or more years after the war. But still, yeah, there was tremendous damage. There were bomb sites everywhere, the wreckage of the old cathedral, and next to it would be the building of the new cathedral. And that, I remember, we would do that as a, a matter of routine when we went shopping on a Saturday, we would visit, you know, stop and see the progress. Um, So I have very blurry, very fragmented, but very fond memories of Coventry, really.
2: And Heather Martin, in your authorised biography, The Reacher Guy, talks about the story of Lady Godiva, whose statue stands in Coventry. She rides into town to stand up for the people against the oppressor, in this case, her husband demanding taxes. Was there maybe a subconscious inspiration for Reacher in that for you?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember that statue very well. My parents were very repressed sort of people. And the idea that, you know, the thing about Lady Godiva is that she was naked. And I think the statue is appropriately discreet and kind of polite. (laughs) But still, there was a little edge about it so that it was more something you turned away from than than learned the history of. But in, in general, I think everything about me and therefore everything about Richard is somehow connected to the national response to the Midlands. Uh, you had to be an outsider, really, if you came from the Midlands, because I was very much under the impression subliminally that the rest of Britain kept you at arm's length. You were never quite allowed to join, uh, you know, be in English. It was... They treated you with a certain amount of suspicion and, frankly, a certain amount of contempt. And I think that's what gave the Midlands its both its strengths and its problems.
2: What was Birmingham like when you moved to it at the age of four then? This was in the late 1950s, both Coventry and Birmingham and the rest of the country still recovering from the war, really.
1: August 1959, we moved to Birmingham, uh, which was just the month before I started at primary school. There was fantastic prosperity, and the Midlands was really powering uh, the the post-war recovery financially. And that kind of industrial prosperity is what I remember. And that had so many ramifications, to be honest. It made a a very self-sufficient population, a kind of self-reliant population. It was baked into everybody that, you got these raw materials, (coughs) you worked on them, and something finished came out the other end of the factory. And that was an attitude that kind of suffused everything. If, if, you, if you your window broke or something like that, you would fix it yourself. If your cooker f- went wrong, you would fix it yourself. Everybody had a familiarity with in- industrial process. There was the kind of down and dirty workshop. This, to me, was the absolute essence of the Midlands. If you wanted something made, you could get it made, whatever it was, and these would be small workshops. And I remember one of them that, where my friend's dad worked, which it had an earth floor, um, and a couple of lathes and a couple of drill presses and three guys, and they would make anything you wanted. People were working; there, there was virtually no unemployment. I remember my grandma coming down from Yorkshire, and uh, she came down for one Christmas probably about 1961, I would think. And she went out with my mother to do the last-minute shopping. And she came back absolutely quivering with excitement because she had seen a normal person with a £5 note. And she had, <laughs> she had never seen that in her life. She herself had never touched a £5 note.
2: Yes. It's worth stressing, though, isn't it, that... Your own family, although your dad was white-collar and he was a civil servant, you weren't particularly well off.
1: Blue-collar people were earning decent money, actually more than my dad probably. Um, but for him it was, you know, a, a silly status thing. He, uh, you know, he, he, he loved that whole thing about being middle class. That's, that was his ambition. Um, and really, you know, if you, if you look at the key to my life, I would say it is I, they were desperately trying to be middle class in an environment that was entirely created by the skilled working class. And it really made for a kind of tension that they never really got over.
2: That's really interesting. I just want to quote from your autobiography on the internet movie database. It says, Lee Child was born in the exact geographic center of England, in the heart of the industrial badlands. Never saw a tree until he was 12. It was the sort of place where if you fell in a river, you had to go to the hospital for a mandatory stomach pump. The sort of place where minor disputes were settled with box cutters and bicycle chains. He's got the scars to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was it really that bad on the mean streets of Birmingham?
1: Certainly the pollution aspect was horrendous. The uh, You know, Birmingham is unique amongst cities in that it doesn't really have a major river. And the one nearest us, the River Tame, I think it was T-A-M-E. It yep. was uh, sluggish and oily and it did go on fire a lot. And nearby there was a little patch of ground where with two little sickly trees growing. And with a sort of yearning irony, we, we called that Bluebell Woods. And, uh, yeah, we were prohibited from going there because if you got it on your clothes, your clothes were ruined. And if you got it on your skin, you would have to run home and wipe it off with lighter fluid because wow. people assumed it was very bad for you. And, sure, if, if you fell in the River Thame, you, ha- you definitely had a stomach pump because the pollution was so bad periodically I mean not every day but once in a while there'd be some spontaneous combustion and and you'd have this strange blue flame hovering above the water.
2: And in this tough industrial city you were a hard kid from pretty early on weren't you? You were tall, you were big, you were tough.
1: I was, I was a great fighter and I loved it. I I was very good at it and I, I saw nothing wrong with it and I enjoyed doing it. And our problem was our family was aspirational, you know. They wanted us to do well at school. And if you were that sort of a family, then you had a target on your back. Uh, you know, if you were getting good marks and doing well, even though discipline in the schools was fine back then, you know, it was very traditional, there was no, none of this sort of mayhem in the classroom or anything like that. But on the way to and from school, there was this weird hierarchy of, uh, if you if you were trying to do well and getting good marks, you were a target and people would be lying in wait for you and all that kind of thing. But that suited me fine. Cause I loved it. I was good at it. And, um, it got even worse then later when I went to the posh grammar school, uh, you know, that was a nightmare. Every morning I would have to fight my way out of the neighborhood and every evening I'd have to fight my way back in. And the problem in particular for us in Birmingham was Hansworth Park, which was, um, between where I lived and Hansworth itself. And, uh, that was, territorial in that old-fashioned way where, you know, you weren't supposed to go to this part or that part. Uh, But if you wanted to walk through, then yeah, it would be, and bicycle chains were a big deal.
2: You mentioned your posh grammar school, King Edwards High School in Birmingham, which you had to pass the 11 plus exam in order to, to go there. But reading your biography, I get the real sense that your junior school, which was called Cherry Orchard in Hansworth Wood, in a way had a more profound impact on you?
1: Well, you're right there, yeah. It was old-fashioned education, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and uh, almost nothing else. So I left there when I was 10, and uh, I would say, at that age, if I'd never learned another thing in my life, I would have been absolutely fine. I could have gotten through life perfectly because they taught you everything you basically needed to know.
2: You've said you felt unloved as a child. You had, I think it's fair to say, a problematic relationship with both of your parents. But close to you, you had a library called Elmwood Library in Hansworth Wood
1: to me it was like
2: a portal
1: to escape because you could get a book and you would be taken out of yourself you went in and it smelled of dust in a particular way and it smelled of books and not all that many books as a matter of fact it was a small branch library and fortunately my parents for all their faults were very into reading you know they were very happy that we we were reading and so they collaborated in a, in a scheme, a bit like voting in Chicago, where everybody had a library card, but of course you could only borrow two books on, on each card or ticket. Um, so anybody who ever came to our house, all our relatives, if they ever visited, we would sign them up for a library ticket. And <laughs> even our dog had a library ticket. And so instead of two books a week, I could get five or six books a week. To me, it was... Uh, It was a magical place, but small. And so after a few years, I'd exhausted it, really. I'd read them all. And then about the only sort of good thing my mother ever did, she then signed us up for the library in Tower Hill, which was like in the next municipality. And you had to cross a canal over a very scary high bridge. And you would get to this much bigger library. And that was like heaven. It was just unbelievable. It felt like an infinite selection of new books.
2: What kind of things were you reading then? I read
1: all the usual stuff, started with Enid Blighton, uh, you know, the Famous Five, the Secret Seven, the Island of Adventure, all that kind of thing. And then, like every other kid, I moved on to Biggles and uh, all of that stuff, and then Alistair MacLean and so on. I loved discovering <laughs> a new author, especially if it was a series, because then I could just race through 10, 20, 30 books. It was great.
2: Yeah, you've talked about how your parents were both repressed in terms of their personal attitudes and very aspirational in a way that you suggest was quite overbearing for you. Would it be true to say then that the library saved you?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I've done so many library events uh, because I just feel like I need to pay it back. I mean, totally. It saved me. Uh, it created me in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, without, without those two libraries as, as a little kid, uh, I would have been a completely different person. And so, yeah, every, every word you can think of, saved, created, uh, rescued, all of those words are true.
2: And we're talking then about a kid You, who is rough and tough, but who's also a really keen and enthusiastic reader. And then at junior school, you discover theatre as well.
1: Yeah, really, this is the key to my whole life, I guess, is uh, it started at Cherry Orchard, which, as I said, was very traditional uh, in every way, except for the headmistress, who was a woman called Maisie Lister, and she actually was the aunt of an actress called Carolyn Lister, who was extremely locally famous because she was in Crossroads.
2: <laughs> Younger listeners might need reminding or telling that that was a famous soap opera made in the Midlands about it a was fictional at,
1: motel. <laughs> at a fictional motel, and it was. The paradigm of all cheap soap operas in that, uh, you know, the sets were wobbly and uh, and all that kind of stuff. It was a classic. And she was in it. And her aunt was our headmistress, who was totally obsessed with show business. And she loved American musicals. So twice a year, the school would put on a show, which was Generally speaking, uh, a random selection of musical numbers from her favourite musicals, linked together by some completely meaningless action, and uh, you know, it was a, in the school hall, which, looking back on it, was pretty small. Stage at one end, and the lights, and the beaming children on the stage, and the and the beaming parents in the seats. It was such a happy feeling. It was about love and approval. I somehow intuited that you could be on the stage and you would receive love and approval from an audience which I was not getting uh, as you know an individual child literally that moment and I was hooked on the idea of some kind of performing that I could get the love and approval that I wasn't getting elsewhere and really that is the the backbone of my life, it has been ever since. The only problem was, you know, I can't sing, I can't dance. I knew exactly what I wanted to be doing, but I couldn't do it, I had no talent. And uh, so I've always done backstage jobs. It sort of migrated then into television. And then writing is, is the ultimate backstage job because it's not about the author at all, it's about the book. It's the book that's in the marketplace and the author is way behind it in the shadows. That has been the operating principle of my life, to try and entertain an audience in the hope of getting love and approval.
2: Having gained a love of theatre though, you then discover arguably, possibly the greatest Midlander of all time.
1: William Shakespeare, who Was just a transcendent genius. Not even on another planet, you know, in a completely different galaxy from anybody else. I was first exposed to him. I think I was about nine, probably, and my mother was a member of a a club called I think it was the Young Wives, and they had uh, block bookings with Stratford. Um, They would take it turn and turn about. My father would take my elder brother on the first occasion, then my mother would take me on the next occasion. I thought, why Why would I want to see that? And I was skeptical about the whole thing. I thought it was la da But it was one of those magical experiences that happens to you a couple of times in your life, if you're lucky. You sit down, bang, two hours are gone. And you've just been completely enraptured by the whole thing. And uh, I remember every detail about it, just magical, just wonderful, even the costumes. But of course, falling in love with Shakespeare early is bad for a writer because you are, <laughs> ne- you are never, ever, gonna get within a million miles of it. I've written 25 books and uh, probably three or four times in, those, in that quarter century had that feeling of euphoria, that the line you just wrote is really pretty good you know you just think yeah god i nailed that shakespeare was feeling it three or four times every hour
2: Uh, can you remember what that production was by the way what you saw at the age of nine
1: uh yeah henry the sixth part one
2: yeah (laughs) but i mean you then used to get the bus on your own to go and watch the royal shakespeare company at the rst you you even got a, a brief internship there didn't you i think in 1970.
1: Yeah, I just went down there and knocked on the stage door, literally, and said, uh, I'd like to see what you do. I'd like to help you out if possible. And they were so nice about it. And they must have sensed that I was really into it or something because, yeah, they just said, sure, come on in. And I I spent weeks there, actually, and uh, learned a lot and had a great time.
2: So you've discovered this love of theatre, you're into your reading and into all this, then you're entering the world of sex and drugs, of rock and roll. That was very much your era. Now, we're going to draw a discreet veil, don't worry, over the sex and the drugs, but the rock and roll, there was plenty of that.
1: There was, yeah, that was the whole parallel strand of what was going on. And again, I had really no musical talent, but that was the paradigm for me, really starting with the Beatles. It was an absolute explosion of freedom and people doing different things and exactly what they wanted in terms of endless creativity, endless energy. Uh, There was a lot of tension involved in that, though, to be honest. I mean, I remember the older generations stock phrase, you know, they would see some guy walking down the street with bell bottoms and long hair and all that, and they would say, we didn't fight the war for the likes of this, <laughs> and you know, to which the only existential answer is, well, yes, you did, you fought for freedom, and this is what freedom looks like, uh, so there was, that's undeniably true, but there was a lot of tension about it, which drove the music scene. Not exactly underground, but it was very much owned by the youth. Uh, Nobody else would ever understand it. And so, yeah, there was so much going on in in the Midlands. Back then, there was no pre-booking of anything. You would show up at the door with two shillings, and uh, you would get in, and you would see some staggering band.
2: Yeah, well, there were really thriving rock scenes across the Midlands. In Birmingham, where you were, was the club described by the DJ John Peel as the greatest club in Europe, which was Mothers on Erdington High Street. And you, you went to Mothers, didn't you?
1: I did. I loved Mothers. There were some great shows there, some great gigs. You would take the bus to Erdington and you would go upstairs above the furniture showroom and you would see Pink Floyd or whoever. It was um, quite amazing.
2: Yeah, I think there's a famous uh, live recording, isn't there, at Mothers in Erdington, one side of Pink Floyd's Gumma album, which yeah. was recorded at Mothers. You, you were there.
1: Yeah, I was there for that Mothers performance. And so I suppose probably some of the applause on there is me.
2: Can you remember anything of that gig? oh yeah
1: yeah i mean again sort of fragmented because the drugs part of, of sex drugs and rock and roll was kicking in as well so all of those memories uh, are vivid but very hard to pin down as to exactly when where and is it true but uh, yeah i can re- i can certainly remember it yeah
2: mm. there's incredibly vibrant music mm. scene uh, birmingham was giving birth to to heavy metal at the time a, a musical genre that's gone around the world
1: We were into this band called Earth. And I remember going to a gig, it cost two shillings uh, to see Earth. And then the next Friday did exactly the same thing, went to see him again for two shillings. And then the third week, it was two and six, because they'd they'd changed their name and become Black Sabbath. The prototypical Midlands band, in terms of they embraced the Midlands values. Uh, You know, it was an industrial sound.
2: You did play with a band as well, didn't you? A band, very Tolkien-esque name, Dark Tower. Yeah,
1: but I did. And I can remember at least two gigs where we were actually paid, money on the door and all of that. Um, But fundamentally, if you took the entire population of the Midlands, uh, males between the age of, say, 16 and 24, and you divided that by four, that was the number of bands there were. Like Everybody was in a band.
2: What were you? Were you a guitarist?
1: I was a guitarist back then, yeah, but really yeah. terrible at it. Afterwards, I tried saxophone, and then I, I I ended up on bass guitar because I figured that there's only four strings and you don't have to play chords, and so it's got to be a bit <laughs> easier.
2: You used to practice at the Midlands Art Centre, uh, which is still there. It's a, an art centre in the middle of a park in Birmingham, but it was very new then, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Art Center was uh, one of those uh, municipal initiatives that was fantastic. And I remember a kid coming in. I was sort of 14. He was probably 19. And so he looked like a god, tall, skinny, long-haired guy. Very, very pleasant, very polite, well-spoken guy. And um, he came in to take a look at the facility because his band was going to rehearse there. And and that turned out to be Robert Plant, yeah. Yeah uh ready for led zeppelin rehearsal
2: you turned out to be an aston villa fan how did that mistake happen (laughs) well yeah
1: i mean mistake yeah there have been many many years where I, i would agree with that assessment but uh i don't know what it was it was i just fell in love with them they looked like a they played like a swaggering bunch of pirates you had to get there at one o'clock really for three o'clock kickoff if you wanted to get a good spot um on the halt end and i was little and you know only a kid and so you had this peculiar protocol where the older guys would shuffle you down to the front and uh tremendous kind of uh collective feeling that you had I was seduced really cruelly by the first two games I went to. The first one, I think it was Ipswich, they beat eight five or something like that, and I thought, "Yeah, this is football, you know, eight goals." And then I went two days later, uh, and they beat Forest something like six nil or six two or something like that, and I thought, "Yeah, this is this is it." But of course, that was a very cruelly deceptive introduction because of pretty much. Uh, they went into decline, you know, they ended up in the third division.
2: But it is worth thinking about it in a Midlands context, isn't it? Pretty much every Midlands town or community of any size has a football club. And although we're not seen in the same sense of the as perhaps the northwest of England or the big London clubs, I would argue that the passion for football is every bit as great here. It's just more diffused because that's the kind of region we are. And it is every bit as much a key to the identity of Midlands people as anywhere else in the country. This is the place where the football league was founded, after all.
1: Well, exactly, and that, that's the point. That you know, it's very, very Midlands, very practical. They actually got on with it and did it. You know, they formed the <laughs> uh, they formed the league uh, in a in a practical operational sense. And again, it's exactly like the Midlands in that. We do not have the glamour that, for instance, Manchester has. This peculiar English psychology, the pecking order or the hierarchy, the Midlands always comes at the bottom. And that has repercussions everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. We invented the Football League. But let's say you're Lionel Messi looking for a contract at the end of your career. You might well go to Manchester. You would not think of going to Birmingham simply because the impression is so negative and has been for so long. And, what you know, do you think
2: that is, Lee?
1: It's some kind of class thing. It's some kind of regional prejudice. It's some kind of highfalutin prejudice against grubby manufacture. People that made their money in manufacturing, they wanted to get out of it straight away. So that if you had made a fortune spinning cotton or bashing metal or whatever it was, you would want to send your son to Eton or something and you would want him to be an aristocrat, you wouldn't want him to take over the firm. Uh, This kind of prejudice against manufacturing somehow tainted the whole region in a way that did it a huge disservice in my opinion. Uh, I felt all the time that Birmingham and the Midlands as a whole was fighting against a huge negative impression it, it really puzzles me in a way um, other countries like Italy you know Italy has tremendous art and history and, and culture and so on but they treat engineers and manufacturers in uh, with a lot more status than, than the British do
2: and I know you've said previously that you see yourself as a citizen of the world. It also strikes me that, although you might've left the Midlands, the Midlands hasn't left you. You almost self-consciously have a, a Midlands attitude to work.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. That, uh, cause to write a book is, is not about you. It's about the reader. Uh, you've got to be very clear that you're producing something that somebody else will consume. And in fact, if they don't consume it, it's the same thing as not having done it at all. If you write a book and nobody reads it, have you actually written a book? It's like that Zen proposition. (laughs) And so I was very aware of that Midlands attitude. I mean, it's commercial, obviously, but it's also practical. You make something of sufficient value and attraction that other people are going to want to consume it or own it and so yeah completely 100 percent. it was a midlands attitude get the work done no fuss no drama just get it done get it done right and then move on to the next one
2: lee uh, before we finish i'm going to take you through a few questions your favorite midlands memory
1: It was when they were building spaghetti junction that was exactly the same time that i turned 17 and was learning to drive and one night i was driving home from somewhere and i got caught up in the half completed spaghetti junction and i was at this one place where everywhere seemed to be blocked off and so i I saw a small gap and i drove into this gap thinking that here is the part of the road that's open uh, and I, then I jammed on the brakes because I was about to plummet off a section of the flyover that they hadn't yet finished. Oh, <laughs> no, no. So that kind of, <laughs> that was a very Midlands memory for me because, it you know, that, that sort of optimism of youth, I thought, you know, I'll find my way through here. But also that, that huge investment, you know, that huge project. That because it was a revolutionary thing, Spaghetti Junction. Nothing had, be, nothing like it had ever been seen in Britain before.
2: A symphony in concrete, right then. Yeah. Your Midlands masterpiece.
1: I'm going to say Villa Park for that. <laughs> uh, you know, not not just because of the sentimental attachment to the football, but because of what it represented as we said before, you know, this was where the football league was invented. And this was like building a cathedral to a new populist activity. Uh, And it was done with great aplomb and great seriousness. The, the, uh, you know, the, the stand is the brick and the stained glass and all that kind of stuff. It was so permanent and so magnificent. They weren't messing about.
2: You may have already answered this one, Midland's hero.
1: Well, we talked about Shakespeare, but I've got yeah I've got another pair that, that I really think should be mentioned in in, in the context of uh, my time in the Midlands, and they would be Jerry Dammers and Horace mm. Panther, who yeah. t- together in Coventry actually formed Two Tone Records, yes. which was uh, very important in my opinion because. The music was great i mean i loved i loved the scar indigenous organic music coming out of the midlands it was wonderful but also you know race relations in the midlands in the 60s and 70s was pretty bad and the initiative to uh, to form that kind of mixed race cultural output was very valuable and to call it two-tone was a brilliant message because it was saying to everybody, look, the future is gonna be two-tone. And uh, it was something that needed to be said. It was incredibly valuable. And, uh, you know, for me in person, if I was hanging out with school friends from the posh side of Birmingham, that was all white all the time. But hanging out locally with my local friends, right from the beginning, it had been a mixture. And I, I, I observed uh, this progress during my life, negative progress, really, as a little tiny kid when I was first in primary school. Um, you know, we had black kids sitting next to me in the class. That was the Windrush generation. Uh, and that's why I got so mad about that Windrush scandal. I mean, those guys sat next to me in primary school, obviously, they're British. Uh, and it was no problem until somebody decided it was a problem. Then this propaganda started up. This was a bad thing, and that lasted really ten or fifteen years. And it was took people like two-tone records and so on to start to make a dent in that. Um, and so, you know, it was valuable musically, but it was also very valuable socially.
2: Your Midlands Manifesto, one thing to make the Midlands better?
1: Well, I I think it's hopeless to do it from within Britain. My experience outside of Britain is, you know, if I meet people in America and they they say, where are you from? And I tell them, Birmingham. There's two responses. Either people, they've got no idea what or where it is. And that's most of them, to be frank. They think Britain is London. And then there's some cotswoldy villages and then there's some golf courses in scotland that's what they think of as britain but if you happen to be talking to somebody in some kind of commercial world or engineering world or something like that who's either buying or selling machine tools or components or something like that you say i'm from birmingham they know it very well and they know it in a, in a way that is not clouded by the internal British prejudices. They just know it for what it is. A contributor to global trade, a contributor to precision engineering. And that that would be the way to do it, I think. We've got to rebuild Birmingham and the Midlands as a whole in terms of what it does well. And we've got to let the rest of the world actually discover it. And that will happen before the rest of Britain discovers it.
0: Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The executive producer is Richard Berry, sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg.
2: Brilliantly, Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on Made in the Midlands. Thank you, Adrian.
0: You can watch a version of this episode on the Coventry City of Culture YouTube channel.
2: Interesting that Lee Child chose the originators of two-tone music as his Midlands heroes, because our next podcast is with another hero of that musical genre, Coventry's own Queen of Scar, Pauline Black. She wasn't actually born in the Midlands, but arrived here as a teenage student and firmly stayed put.
0: I've never had a temptation to leave the Midlands. Call me stupid, probably, because probably lots of people would say, you should have gone to London, you should have done this, you should have done that. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Pauline and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd also love to know about your own Midlands heroes. Email us at made in the Midlands at loftusmedia.co.uk
2: Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. And please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed.
0: Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021. Proudly produced by Loftus Media.
2: Thanks for listening. ta da